This is episode number 60 of the Jewish History Podcast. I want to thank all the listeners that have been there since the beginning and all the new listeners that have joined on board. And as you can imagine, researching and preparing and organizing and editing these podcasts take a long time, as you can imagine. And I think at episode 60, it's fair for me to ask the audience to do something for me. And I made a list of five things that each one of the listeners could do. You could choose one of the five, maybe you want to do all five. But these are five things that you could do for me uh, if you want to show your appreciation for the hard work that I've put in to making 60 episodes of the Jewish History Podcast. You could choose any one of these five options. Uh, Option number one would be to make a donation to torchweb.org. There's, of course, a link in the description. We have an organization here in Houston, Texas, with five rabbis. We're doing all kinds of Jewish education and outreach. Check out our website, torchweb.org, and make a donation. That would be option number one. Option number two would be to share this podcast with a friend. If you enjoy it, it's quite likely that there'll be someone else that you know that will enjoy it too. Share it with them. Option number three, download, listen, and subscribe to one of my other podcasts. This is one of, for the time being, five podcasts. Please, God, in the future, we're going to add a few more. But I have the Parsha podcast, This Jewish Life, Eternal Ethics, Torah 101. You can put in the name into whatever podcast app you use and see them all. Or there's also links on my website and in the description of your podcast. Listen to some other topic besides for Jewish history. You may enjoy that as well. Option number four. On iTunes, this podcast has 68 five-star reviews at the last time that I checked. And I appreciate everyone that's gone out of the way to make a five-star review. But I see no reason why we can't have 100. So that would be option number four. Give it a five-star rating on iTunes. And finally, option number five, send me an email. The email address is rabbiwolby at gmail.com. Introduce yourself. Don't be a stranger. Thank you all for listening. And thank you for doing something for me. I really appreciate it. This Jewish History Podcast is sponsored in honor of my friend and study partner, Carlos Weil, his wife, Jill, and children, Jordan and Noah. Thank you for your friendship and generous support of Torch. Since his appearance in Chapter 2 of the Book of Exodus, Moses is the most important character in the Torah. And in fact, the Torah ends with the passing of Moses at the end of Deuteronomy. Now, of all the people in Jewish history, there's probably more to talk about regarding Moses than any other individual. Uh, He's considered by Jewish philosophy to, to be the greatest person, greatest man of all time. So there's a lot of different angles to parse out his story. So for example, we're told in the Torah that Moses, Moshe, is the greatest prophet. And all the commentaries and the Talmud and Maimonides, they all explain that Moses wasn't just a greater prophet on a higher level. He was qualitatively different on multiple fronts. So for example, I'll read your quote here from Maimonides. All the prophets with the exception of Moses, prophesied in dreams or visions. But Moses prophesied while awake and alert. All the prophets prophesied via an angel. Therefore, they see through parables and riddles. But Moses prophesied not via an angel 
as it states, mouth to mouth, I speak to him. And God spoke to Moses face to face. So Moses is the only one that has direct divine communication. All the other prophets, it's via an angel. As if to say, with respect to Moses, without parables, rather he sees the matter clearly, without riddles and without parables. All the prophets are stricken, frightened, and exhilarated. But Moses is as a person speaks to his friend. All the prophets cannot prophesy whenever they want, but Moses is not like that. Rather, whenever he desires, the Holy Spirit envelops him and prophecy rests upon him. Maimonides delineates four qualitative differences between the prophecy of Moses and all the other prophets. All the other prophets, it's via a dream, a vision, a trance, whereas Moses, it's direct verbal communication from God. It's all scintillatingly clear. All the other prophets, it's via an angel. Moshe, Moses, it's via God himself. For Moses, talking to God is a natural form of communication. He doesn't get too excited. He doesn't get too terrified. It's normal. In fact, Moses' conversation with humans ceases to become normal, as the Torah tells us in chapter 34 of Exodus, that Moses had to wear a mask to separate his face from the onlookers, from other humans when he would talk to them. And finally, Moses is able to prophesy on demand. All the other prophets have to sit and wait if God appears to them and communicates to them, then they have prophecy. Otherwise, they cannot beckon God to speak to them. Whereas Moses, he's able to prophesy whenever he wants. The Talmud relates that all prophets have their own style. Because every prophet, they are conveyed some sort of image or parable or vision, and they have to interpret what that means. So Jacob is shown a ladder with angels going up and down. They're shown something, and then they have to filter that through themselves and spit out the message in their own formulation. Whereas Moshe, Moses, his prophecy is but a funnel and a conduit from God, and that's, of course, why Moses is the one to give us Torah, because he's not contributing any of his own embellishment, any of his own interpretation, any of his own style. He's just giving us the direct, undiluted word of God. So, of course, Moses' prophecy is definitely one angle of his character persona that is very unique. Uh, In addition, Moshe, Moses, is the most humble of men according to the Torah, the book of Numbers 12.3. Moshe is anav me'od, mikol ha'adam ashal p'nei ha'adama. Moshe is exceedingly humble more than any other man who exists upon the face of the earth. So, in addition to being the greatest prophet... Moses is excelling with respect to humility. In addition, we find the Torah attributes supernatural capabilities to Moses. So, for example, several times, three by my count, in Exodus 34, Deuteronomy 9, uh, 9 and 9, 19, the Torah stresses that for the duration of Moshe's 40-day ascent to Sinai, he did not eat bread nor drink. Of course, humans need food and water at regular intervals or else we'll die. Moses is a different kind of human where he's able to go from 40 days to 40 nights without eating nor drinking. In several Talmudic sources, Moses is called an angel. And in scripture, in chapter 34, verse 29 of Exodus, 
uh, we learn that upon his descent from the mountain, his face shone so brightly, it was as bright as the sun. And from that point forward, Moses had to wear a mask to avoid blinding the people. So again, we're giving these indications of Moses as being such a different class of human, something we can't even fathom, the greatest prophet, the most humble. He's like an angel. In addition, the Talmud gives us a very interesting dialogue that Moses conducted with the angels upon his ascent to heaven. The angels inquired God, what is this human doing amongst us? Why is there a human in heaven? And the Almighty tells the angels, according to the Talmud of the Book of Shabbos, page 88b, that Moses is here to get the Torah. And the angels are absolutely incredulous. This Torah that exists for 974 generations before the world was created, you're going to give it to humans, the flesh and blood? They can't believe it. They, they couldn't justify that ridiculous notion. How do you intend to give such a holy Torah to such fallible, transient humans? So God tells Moses, okay, well, why don't you give them an answer? Justify your claim. And Moses tells God, well, I'm scared. If I, if I argue with them, what if they burn me with the fire of their nostrils? And the mighty responds, no, 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 grab onto my throne and you could talk comfortably. You know I'm going to protect you. And then Moses launches an attack on the argument of the angels. He rebuts their claim. He triumphs over them in his argument. And he's able to get them to agree that the Torah indeed belongs in the hands of man, not in the hands of angels. Again, we see Moses is like this hybrid of human and angel, and he's able to negotiate and engage and debate and triumph over angels. The Talmud, in the book of Menachos 29b, tells us another supernatural ability that Moses had, and that he was able to time travel. And it says that when Moses ascended to heaven, he saw that God was making designs, little crownlets above the letters. Why are you making crownlets above the letters? If you look inside a Torah scroll, you'll notice that there are certain letters upon which there are certain designs, certain crowns. Why, pray tell, asks Moshe, do you, God, need to make these embellishments on top of the letters? And God responds, well, there's going to be an individual in about 14 or 1500 years hence. His name is Rabbi Akiva. And he's going to study the crownlets, the jots and tittles above the letters. So Moses is so impressed by this. He says, okay, I want to meet him. Well, of course we know he doesn't exist yet. He's only going to exist 1,400 years in the future. But God says, okay. And he puts Moses in some sort of magical time machine. He tells him, turn around. Moses turns around and voila, he's sitting in the lecture hall of Rabbi Tiva in Israel 1,400 years in the future where we get details of what he experienced in the lecture hall. And then he came back to God and said to God, why are you giving the Torah via me? Give it via Rabbi Tiva. He goes a second time to witness the death of Rabbi Tiva at the hands of the Romans. But the obviously the, the underlying eye-popping revelation is the fact that Moses, according to the, this source, is able to time travel. And that, of course, is another aspect of his persona that is definitely 
impressive and worthy of inquiry. And I think just this brief survey of Moses' resume will make it clear that there's a lot to talk about when we discuss Moses. After all, he's the one who is the conveyor of Torah. He's this bridge connecting our world with the heavens above. But what I want to do in this podcast is isolate one aspect of his persona, and that is his leadership qualities. Moses was and is the quintessential Jewish leader. And the sources demonstrate that he wasn't only a great Jewish leader, but he was a different type of leader, a type of leader that we seldom see today. And I think by learning about Moses' character as a leader, as he related to his underlings, to his constituencies, we could build a model of what other Jewish leaders really are supposed to try to emulate. So what I want to do is I'm going to ignore a lot of Moshe's storyline, because if we did it in its entirety, it would be a lot longer than one episode. But I want to examine the unique nature of Moshe's, of Moses's leadership profile and to try to build a template from it of what the prototypical Jewish leader looks like and how we should strive to make sure that our leaders, our Jewish leaders, fit that mold. So again, this is going to be an incomplete retelling of Moses' story. We're just going to highlight several aspects of his characteristics and his profile and his persona that are noteworthy vis-a-vis his stature as the greatest leader of our history. So the first part to look at is Moses' pedigree. His father's name is Amram, and his mother's name is Yocheved, and his relationship to Levi, the son of Jacob, goes both through his father and his mother. His mother, Yocheved, is the daughter of Levi, and his father is the grandson of Levi. More specifically, we're told in Exodus 6.20 that his father Amram married his aunt Yocheved. And this relationship was consummated before the Torah was officially conveyed at Sinai, obviously. And in the book of Leviticus, we read how one of the prohibited relationships is a man is not allowed to marry his aunt. A man is allowed to marry his niece, but is not allowed to marry his aunt. And had Moses been born a hundred years later, he would have been a bastard. He would have been born to a an illegitimate union. Meaning that Moses' background was a little bit scandalous, borderline scandalous. He would have been a pariah, an outcast, someone who is not allowed to intermarry into the Jewish people if his parents had married a hundred years later. Which means that Moses had some skulls in the closet. In fact, one of the commentaries points out that this indeed is a quality, is a feature, not a bug. It's a benefit of Moses' characteristic, the fact that his background, his lineage, 
wasn't so perfect. Why? For someone to be a great Jewish leader, they have to have, in the words of the Talmud, the book of Yoma, page 22, they have to have a box of rodents attached to their neck. It's, it's, it's a very splashy way of saying that he has to have some stalls in the closet. He can't be too perfect. Because if someone is too perfect, if someone is infallible, if someone is just so perfect on every front, they cannot properly relate to the simple people, to the peasantry, to the people that are not so perfect. So, in fact, Moses and his background is actually a positive model that Jewish leaders are supposed to have. They're not supposed to be so perfect. And the Talmud goes on to say that Saul was perfect in every way. But his kingdom and his monarchy and his reign lasted a grand total of two years. David was a great-grandson of Ruth, who was not only was she a convert, but she was a convert from a nation that it wasn't so clear if that nation is in fact allowed to convert to Judaism. According to some opinions in in, in the times of David, he was illegitimate. He wasn't a legitimate Jew because his great-great-grandmother, Ruth, was a Moabite and it wasn't so clear if Moabite women are allowed to convert and intermarry the Jewish people. And that uncertainty, that fact that he does not have this unquestionable, glorious lineage, he's not the scion of a prestigious family, is actually an asset. So that's the first thing we see about Moses, that his background is a little bit uncomfortable to talk about. Moreover, his upbringing is arguably traitorous. Why? As a very young child, Moses is hidden in a box. His mother sends the box floating on the river. And as fate would have it, he's picked up and adopted by Pharaoh's daughter. And he grows up in luxury insecurity in the bosom of the enemy. He grows up as a stepson of the great villain. And of course, it's quite easy for people to look at Moses and say, he's not representing us. He's one of them. He lived as a stepson of Pharaoh, the same man who is subjugating and enslaving the Jews. In fact, his name Moses, who gave him his name Moses? According to Jewish tradition, his mother gave him a Jewish name. The name Moshe, the name Moses, is an Egyptian name given to him by his Egyptian stepmom. Is this someone that you and I would think is a, is, is a good candidate to lead the Jews out of Egypt? Someone who grew up in the lap of luxury, in the palace, together with all the Egyptians? Most of us would say that no, he's not a good candidate. And yet we see that specifically someone like this, someone who does not fit into the mold, someone who wasn't produced in the cookie cutter mold of what we would imagine a great Jewish leader would look like. Someone like that is bound to have humility, is likely to be able to identify with the lower statured members of the populace, and someone whose rise to power or rise to greatness is unexpected. It's not like people were pointing at Moses from day one and saying, you're destined to lead the nation. He was able to grow and flourish in obscurity, 
without the grand expectations of people looking at him and pointing to him as a likely candidate to save the Jews. And this is something we see more broadly. Like we said, we talked about King David. He was someone like that, his own family, in fact. When Samuel came to the house of Jesse and he says to him, one of your, one of your sons is going to be the king, he went through all the sons, but no one even thought to nominate David because even his own family, his parents, his brothers, they all thought, of course, David's not the right guy. David, that gingy in the back with the shepherd, he's no way going to have the chops to be a leader. And yet he's the, the prototypical king of Israel. David Melech Israel, David, the king of Israel. Moses is like that a, a little bit as well. And in fact, this applies also with respect to, to Torah leadership. You know, Maimonides, when he delineates the order of the transmission of the Torah, he's constantly highlighting the fact that some of the great Torah leaders of our history arose to prominence from total obscurity. For example, Rabbi Akiva, Rabbi Meir, descendants of converts, Shmaya and Aftalion, converts themselves. Hillel grew up in poverty. Like these are not, the great Jewish leaders are ones that start from very humble beginnings. Now, in verse 11 of chapter 2, we read about Moses coming of age. And we read three separate episodes in succession where we're given somewhat of a biography of his character. So verse 11 we read, and it was in those days, Moshe grew up, he went out to his brethren, and he saw in their pain and suffering, and he saw an Egyptian man striking a Hebrew man of his brethren. So the first verse we read about Moses as an adult, he goes out, he goes to witness the suffering of his fellow Jews. He sees an Egyptian man attacking a Hebrew man of his brethren. He turns right, turns left. He sees that no one is watching. He strikes the Egyptian. He kills him and he buries him in the sand. The very first event or two events of Moses' life as an adult, he witnesses the suffering of the Jewish people and he takes action when there is a Egyptian man striking a Jewish man of his brethren. And this shows us right away from the very beginning that Moses was intolerant of evil. He was intolerant of the vulnerable being beaten. And he defended them, even if it meant endangering his own life. And the Midrash goes on to elaborate what happened in this episode. Because the episode begins that Moses saw the suffering of his brethren in a more generalistic sense. And then it goes on specifically to talk about he saw one particular Egyptian man striking one particular Hebrew man of his, of his brethren, and he takes action. But the question the Midrash poses is, what did Moses see, generally speaking, when he saw the suffering of his Jewish brethren? What is meant by the words, and he saw? He would see their suffering and weep, saying, Woe is to me for you! Would that I could die for you, for there is no work more strenuous than molding bricks. Moses would lower his shoulder to take upon the burden and help each and every one of them. The first understanding of what happened here is that Moses would go out and see people suffering, and he would try to help them 
as best he could. He would shoulder the burden of each individual that he encountered. And I think this is conveying to us a very deep point about Moshe's character and his profile as a leader. This is a nation comprised of hundreds of thousands of slaves. There is a wide-scale injustice being perpetrated against the Jewish people. What does Moses do? He sees people suffering. And he lowers his shoulder and tries to help every person that he encounters. Well, how many people could Moses have possibly helped? A dozen? Two dozen? A hundred? Maybe if he was very assiduous, a thousand? It's a drop in a bucket compared to how many Jews are suffering. But the commentaries explain here is that Moses was so pained by the suffering of other people, he wasn't making calculations, how do I solve a problem? He was trying to alleviate pain. Their pain was his pain. How does someone respond when they feel pain? They try to alleviate it. And this is much deeper than kindness. It's identifying with another person to the degree that when they're suffering, you're suffering. That's what Moshe Moshe is showing us here. The first major episode of his life as a leader, we see that he's very selfless. He cares about what other people are going through. Their pain is his pain. And right away, he's motivated to act to try to help them. Even if it's not going to solve the problem, because he's not operating at that level. Let's solve problems from central planning. He is identifying with the pain of those that are suffering. That's the first interpretation of the Midrash, but it really reveals a deep insight into who Moshe was and what the Torah is telling us about him and why he was selected, as we shall see. The Midrash continues, a second interpretation of what Moses saw. Rabbi Elazar, the son of Rabbi Yossi from the Galilee said, he saw a large load on a frail person and a light load on a large person, a load intended for a man on a woman, and a load intended for a woman on a man, a load intended for an elderly person on a youngster, and a load intended for a youngster on an elderly person. Moses abandoned his stature. Moses, after all, was a prince. And went to alleviate their suffering under the guise of assisting Pharaoh. Consequently, the Holy One, blessed is he, the Almighty said, you set aside your matters and went to witness the plight of Israel and treated them like brothers, I too, says God, will set aside the lofty and lowly matters and talk to you. What we're told here is that in the very first episode of Moses' life as an adult, we see the key of why he was selected, why he was special, why he became the great leader, the great prophet, and the model upon which Jewish leadership is viewed through. He noticed the suffering of every individual, not just in a generalistic sense, but on an individual minute level. He noticed that there's a frail person who's suffering in this way, and there's an old person suffering in this way, and there's a young person and a man and a woman. Everyone he was able to identify with them, to feel what they're feeling, and to suffer with them on their level. He lowered himself. He was a prince after all. He lowered himself and treated other people like brothers. When your brother's in pain, you feel the pain. God says, okay, in response, I will lower myself and I will become, so to speak, an equal to, I will talk to you face to face. 
this, I think, from this very beginning introduction of Moses, we see a definition of Jewish leadership. Jewish leadership is shouldering the pain and the burden of the constituents, suffering alongside them, and being selfless. And right after this episode, there's two immediate episodes in succession. The second day, Moses goes out, and he sees two Jewish men fighting. And right away, he intervenes. He tells one of them, wicked one, why are you striking your brother? And the man responds to him, why are you in charge? Who made you the boss? Why are you intervening? Are you going to kill us like you killed the Egyptian man yesterday? And Moses realizes he's in danger. And those people go and form on Pharaoh, and Pharaoh wants to kill Moses. And Moses has to flee. And he flees to the land of Midian, and he ends up at a well. And the minister of Midian, of course, that's Jethro, who's soon to be Moses' father-in-law, he has seven daughters, and the seven daughters are taking the flock to the well to fill up the water. And all the other shepherds start harassing these vulnerable girls. And Moses right away stands up and defends them and gives water to their flock. So we're exactly seven verses into Moses' story, and we see three times that Moses is defending those that are vulnerable, is intolerant of evil, is intervening, is proactive in trying to remedy what he sees as injustice. He's not complacent. He's not quieted. He's totally intolerant of evil, and he reacts instinctively. Moses, Moses' goodness and care and concern for other people had penetrated so deeply within him that all evil was anathema, and when he saw evil, immediately it elicited a response. And that, of course, is helping to contribute to the construction of what it means to be a great Jewish leader. I want to look a little bit further to the episode of The Burning Bush, in chapter 3 of Exodus. So the first thing we're told is that Moses marries Zipporah, the daughter of Jethro. And he's hired by his father-in-law as a shepherd. So he's out one day with his flock and he sees a burning bush. But counterintuitively, the bush is not being consumed by the fire. And indeed, this is a representation of God and he has a, his first prophecy. But what's interesting here is that Rashi, in his comment on this verse, this is chapter 3, verse 2, Rashi asks the question is, why is God talking to Moses from amidst a burning bush? A bush is, after all, a small little plant. Maybe God should have talked to Moses from a burning tree or a burning cedar tree, something a little bit more impressive. And the answer, says Rashi, it's to show that God is suffering alongside the Jewish people. Jewish people are suffering. They're enslaved in Egypt. They're being tormented and mistreated. God says, I'm going to lower myself, so to speak. I am going to suffer alongside them. I am with them in their pain. I'm only going to occupy, so to speak, a bush when I convey my prophecy to Moses. And we see here that Moses is emulating 
God, just like God is identifying and lowering himself and suffering with the Jewish people, so to speak, Moses does the same thing. And this, again, is very, it's very revealing about Moses' character and the character of a great Jewish leader. And God tells him right away, take off your shoes. It's been speculated that why did God tell, Mo- tell Moshe to take off your shoes? It's a very odd commandment. And maybe we could speculate that of all your clothing items, the one thing or the one item that's most distinct to a person is their shoes. You, know, you can't really share. You could share your T-shirt, your coat, maybe even your pants. You could share a lot of things with your friends. But shoes is one thing you don't share. Why? Because the shoes, they mold to your feet. And they become yours exclusively. And Moshe is about to be initiated as a great Jewish leader. He's previously been an individual, a very righteous individual, but now he's never responsibility of the whole Jewish nation. First thing God tells him, take off your shoes. Meaning that you have to break out of this smaller, pre-existing, narrow world. You have to make yourself malleable to be able to fit into other people's worlds and accommodate them. And then he tells him, I'm going to send you on this very important mission. God tells him, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I saw the suffering of my nation in Egypt. I heard their cries. I know their pain. I want to go save them. And I want to hire you as my emissary. Not a bad job offer. God wants to hire Moses as the leader to lead the Jews out of Egypt and into the land of Israel. God tells Moses, now go and I will send you to Pharaoh and you will take my children, the children of Israel, outside of Egypt. And remarkably, you would think that if someone is given a job offer from God, they'd take it regardless. But if it's a job offer from God to become the most important figure in all of Jewish history, that sounds like an incredible offer. And what does Moses do? He right away accepts it. That's what you would think, but he doesn't. In fact, he is so reluctant to take upon the mantle of leadership, and he argues and argues and argues with God, telling him, no, no, take someone else. I'm not qualified. I'm not worthy. In fact, our sages tell us that his seven days of negotiation, Moses is unwilling to take the job. And he mounts six distinct arguments over the course of that week, of why he's not qualified. First, he says, well, who am I to go? I'm not worthy of speaking to kings. And then he says, well, why are the Jews worthy of being saved? What name should I tell the Jewish people when they ask me? They won't believe me. I'm not a great communicator. And finally, he says, send someone else. Implying, send Aaron, my older brother. First thing we see here is that there's humility. He genuinely believes that he's not qualified for the job. This is, so to speak, the way they used to run for president. It was it was considered uncouth for someone to nominate themselves. You have to get someone else to nominate you. The idea is is that a real leader is someone who doesn't want the job, doesn't feel that they're even worthy of the job. It's improper for them to be... By merely being desirous of the job, it shows that you're not qualified. That's the way the leaders of America used to be, and that's what we we see with Moses. In fact, 
he is the most qualified person for the job and his reluctance to accept the job is more proof that he is indeed worthy. And the commentaries point out is that the real reason why Moses was reluctant to take the job is because he felt, you know, he has, a, he has an older brother. And his older brother Aaron, how is Aaron going to feel when he sees his little baby brother ascending to the highest office in the land? He'll feel a little miffed. He'll feel maybe a little bit envious. And therefore, maybe the Jewish nation is at stake But I'm not going to trample on Aaron, says Moses, even if it's proper, even if God tells me, and even if the future of the Jewish people rests upon this, if we have to denigrate Aaron, there's got to be another way. It's not, it's not, it's not proper for me to do it. And you know what? God actually agrees with Moses. God agrees that had Aaron been envious, it would be improper for Moses to go. But God says to Moses, Aaron will be glad in his heart when he sees you becoming the king of the Jewish people. And in fact, in all of Torah, there's only one person upon which there is testimony that there's no envy, and that's Aaron. Only Aaron. Of all people in all of the whole Torah, only Aaron does the, Torah, does the Torah testify harbors no envy in his heart. But what's clear from this episode is that had Aaron been envious in his heart, then Moshe had a good had a good argument. It was it would be improper for Moses to go assume the mantle of leadership. It's just that the reality was that Aaron would be happy. But the principle is indeed true that. If Moses was to shame Aaron, it would not be worth it, which is an astonishing idea that, you know, the ends do not justify the means. Even if the ends mean saving the Jewish people and the means is only denigrating one man, which is a very surprising takeaway, but it seems like that's evident from the text that according to Jewish philosophy – and Jewish leadership, if there's a very important ends to be had and the means are a little bit problematic, the ends do not justify the means. What happens right afterwards? Moshe finally agrees he's going to go back to Egypt to go save the Jews. But first, he makes a pit stop in chapter 4, verse 18 back at the home of his father-in-law. What does he tell his father-in-law? He tells him, he asks permission, can I go back to Egypt to save the Jewish people? This seems very surprising. Moshe was given an instruction by God to go save the Jewish people, and he goes to ask Jethro for permission? God sends you on a mission, and you don't go and consult your idolatrous father-in-law Can I do it? Should I do it? What do you think? It seems very odd. So the commentaries explain that Moses, when Moses married his wife Zipporah, he promised to not leave unless he gets permission from Jethro. And now he's about to leave. 
So he's going to ask Jethro for permission. That was the deal. The fact that God told him to leave doesn't seem to matter. The deal was that Moses would only leave Midian with the permission, with the blessing of his father-in-law. God tells you to leave. Doesn't matter. You still have to stop. You have to keep your word. Says the Midrash. The verse in Psalms tells us, Mi Hashem, Who may ascend the mountain of God? Who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not taken a false oath by my life, nor sworn deceitfully. There's four requirements to ascend the mountain of God. Moses checked all boxes. What's the last one of those instructions? Has not sworn falsely. Moses swore to his father-in-law, I will not leave unless I get your permission. Even if God tells you to leave, suppose Jethro said no, Moses would not have gone to Egypt. And in fact, this episode of Moses going to ask permission demonstrates that he's worthy of ascending the mountain of God. So again, we see that the ends, even if the ends means the salvation of Jewish people, do not necessarily justify the means, even if the means is only reneging on a promise that Moshe gave to his father-in-law. Moshe travels back to Egypt. He rendezvous with his brother Aaron. They call a meeting of all the elders of Israel. They display all the miracles that God gave them. And they head to Pharaoh to knock on the palace doors, demanding that Israel be sent free. And in chapter 5, verse 1, we read that Moses and Aaron came to Pharaoh. But conspicuously absent are the elders. Everyone agreed we're going to go to Pharaoh, but the elders didn't show up. Commentaries tell us, Rashi tells us, that they all started marching to the palace, and slowly there was attrition. One of the elders laughed, and the next one laughed. People were scared. You know, go knock on the house of a despot. You know, go to Stalin's house and knock on his door, demand freedom. They'll chop off your head. At the end, when they finally arrived to Pharaoh, there was only two people left, Moses and Aaron. And I think this shows us another element of, of a great Jewish leader. Once Moses knows he has the backing of God, he's not scared of anyone or anything. He goes over to Pharaoh with gumption and gall, with the security of knowing that God is with you. He doesn't fear Pharaoh. He doesn't fear any man. He only fears God, another characteristic of great Jewish leaders. Additionally, we see that Moses displayed superlative financial integrity. So, for example, by the episode of the Korach Rebellion in the Book of Numbers, there is a shoot-off, there is a standoff, where Korach and his contingency are going to make an offering to God, Aaron's going to make an offering to God, and whoever God accepts, that's the true priest. And Moses starts praying, and he tells God, do not turn to their offering. Not one donkey did I take from them, and I have not wronged any one of them. 
Commentaries explain what is what is this note? Moses didn't even take one donkey. What does that even mean? Rashi and the various commentaries explain, according from the Talmud, Moses, even when he was traveling on behalf of the Jewish people, he was traveling from Midian to Egypt, for example. Who pays for the transportation costs? Should have been the Jewish people. But Moses footed the bill himself. In addition, over the course of everything that's happened, never once did Moses tell any other person, why don't you carry this for me? Why don't you schlep this for me? Could you just hold this for me? Never once. He didn't benefit at all from his, he didn't, he didn't personally benefit at all financially from his role as the king, as the leader of the Jewish people, even willing to outlay from his own pocket the expenses that really should have been paid by the public. In addition, we're told that when Moses was going in and out of the tabernacle, when they were soliciting huge amounts of, of gold, silver, and other precious materials to build a tabernacle, there was a huge storage house with all the gold. Moses made sure that he had a garment that had no pockets when he walked in and out of that room to make it abundantly clear to everyone that Moses is not siphoning off any of the booty to show that if you're going to be a proper Jewish leader, you have to make sure that your hands are clean, you are free of any financial impropriety. And this, sadly, is not true today. There's lots of graft and lots of corruption and lots of pork and things like that. And even in the state of Israel, there was a line delivered by the Prime Minister of Israel in the 1960s, Levi Eshkol, he was talking about representatives of the state of Israel when they had access to large coffers of money. He said, listen, a little bit of embezzlement, it's expected. And he even compared it to the mitzvah in the Torah, there's a mitzvah in the Torah that when you are taking your ox to plow the field, you can't muzzle the ox. If the ox is working on the field, it has to be able to eat while it's working. Similarly, says Levi Stroll, when we have the representatives of the state of Israel, a little bit of stealing from the state, that's to be expected. You can't muzzle them from that. That's not how we view great Jewish leaders. Great Jewish leaders are the model of Moses, complete, total, financial integrity. And there's other episodes that really show how Moses was dedicated to the betterment and the benefit of the Jewish people. There were two episodes in particular where the Jewish people committed such egregious sins that God pronounced that he's going to destroy the Jewish people and start from scratch with Moses as the leader and the founder of the new nation. The first episode, of course, in the end of of the book of Exodus is the episode of the golden calf. After the sin of the golden calf, God says, I'm done. I'm fed up. We're going to start from scratch. Moshe, you're the leader of the new new chosen people. And in the aftermath of the sin of the spies in the book of Numbers, chapter 14, again, God says, here's a Godfather offer. We're going to start from scratch. New nation, you are the founder of the new nation. Both times, Moses rejects the offer and does whatever it is he can to save the Jewish people, even going as far as telling God, if you kill them, you kill me. If you destroy them, erase me from your book that you have written. I don't want my handprints anywhere near anything that's going to happen to the detriment 
of the Jewish people. And one of the last things that a great leader does is finds a successor. And in the book of Numbers, chapter 27, Moses speaks out to God in a very unusual verse. And Moses spoke to God saying, the most common verse in the Torah is the opposite. God spoke to Moses saying. Here it's Moses spoke to God saying. What did he tell God? May God of all the living souls appoint a man over the community. He gives a very unusual name for God. What does it mean, God of all the living souls? So Rashi explains, Moses says to God, you know all the living souls, all of them are different. No two people resemble each other. Appoint for them a leader that can suffer and bear the pain of each individual according to to his personality. In the Jewish parlance, the definition of a Jewish leader is someone who is able to identify and suffer alongside the pain of every individual in their flock. That's what Moshe was, and that's what he requested his successor be. Uh, Also, we're told, uh, continuing in that request, Moses asked for a leader who will go out before them and will come in before them. And Rashi explains that there's two kinds of leaders. You have kings who stay home in the palace, in the safety, and give directions to the armies at war. And then you have a Jewish king. The Jewish king is on the front lines leading his nation in warfare. That's the way Moses was, and that is the requirement that he demands of his successor, someone who's going to be there at the front lines, not in the safety, not operating from the safety and security of, uh, of, of the great distance from the front lines. And finally, we read the Torah's eulogy of Moses. Moses dies and there's only eight verses left in the Torah. And the last section of the Torah is dedicated to the Torah's eulogy of Moses. Never again has there arisen an Israelite prophet like Moses, whom God had known face to face, as evidenced by all the signs and wonders that Hashem sent him to perform in the land of Egypt against Pharaoh and all his servants and all his land and by all the strong hand and the awesome power that Moses performed before the eyes of all of Israel. Le'ene Kol Yisrael. Thus concludes the Torah. What is this last thing, this very last thing that we're highlighting in Moses' life? All the miracles, all the wonders, all the signs that he did in the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh, and to all his servants, and to all the land, and what the last thing we're told, and by all the strong hand and awesome power that Moses performed before the eyes of all of Israel. What was this thing that Moses did before the eyes of all of Israel. So Rashi tells us that Moses was inspired to break the tablets. In the aftermath of the golden calf, Moses descends from heaven holding two stone tablets hewn by the hand of God, bearing the Ten Commandments. He gets to the foot of the mountain. He sees 
the revelry in the crowd celebrating the golden calf. He takes the two tablets, throws them on the floor, and breaks them to smithereens. Says the Torah, the apex, the zenith, the acme, the ultimate example of Moses' greatness was that he broke the tablets, a decision that he did on his own without consulting with God. If we had to assess what is Moses' greatest accomplishment, he got the Torah, he took us out of the land of Egypt. The last thing we're told about Moses, the final departing message about his character is that he broke the tablets. Why? Because they signify the essence of a great leader. The essence of a great leader is someone who's willing to forfeit their own legacy in favor of the benefit of their people. Moses was holding the most important artifact in all of human history. He had stones hewn by God, magical stones that he brought down from heaven. There was no greater testament to Moses' accomplishments than his acquisition of those stones. And then he sees the Jewish people with the golden calf. And he's faced with a choice. What do you do? Do you keep the stones and forfeit the nation? Or do you forfeit the stones and try to save the nation? Remember, Moses ended up with a second set of tablets. The Jewish people had a second set of tablets. But Moses didn't know that at the time. He had to make a choice. Is it my legacy? Is it my role in history? Is it the tablets? Or is it the potential of saving the Jewish people? Nothing embodies Moses' greatness and his accomplishments as a, as a leader. Then he took the stones, threw them on the ground, shattered them to smithereens. And like we said, there's a really a lot to talk about, about with respect to Moses. But certainly we could say that in Hebrew and in the Talmudic parlance, the name for a great person and the name for a large person is the same. In Hebrew, a great person is Adam Gadol, a lar- what literally means a large person. In Aramaic, the language of the Talmud, a great person is the same as a large person, Gavra Rabba, large person. And the reason why those two are the same is because, by definition, a Jewish leader is a large person because they are encompassing the, the constituents within them. They are able to identify, to expand themselves, to include others within themselves. And the larger a person is, because the more people they encompass within the canopy of themselves, the greater they are. Our sages tell us that Moses was equal to all 600,000 Jews. That's how big he was. That's how great he was. And, you know, just to recap some of these characteristics, I think it's important to keep in mind, you know, in our world where these ideas are maybe uh, seldomly displayed by our leaders, but it's important to to look at how we are presented of the ultimate greatest Jewish leader, Moses. 
We see from the beginning, he's selfless, he's caring, feeling the pain of others, identifying with them, total commitment to the cause, not even to the role. He's very happy if someone else fulfills the role. In fact, he would even prefer that. He's willing to sacrifice himself. He's displaying financial integrity. His word is gold, not willing to trample upon anyone and anyone else's feelings to get what needs to get done, done. And it's for these reasons, amongst other reasons, that Moses is the quintessential Jewish leader. And I think someone that we could learn a lot uh, when we try to identify within ourselves and within others good candidates for, for Jewish leadership. And once again, don't forget to do one of five things for me. Make a donation at torturehub.org, share the podcast with a friend, download, listen, or subscribe to one of my other podcasts, give it a five-star rating on iTunes, or send me an email at rabbiwolby at gmail.com. I look forward to hearing from you. Thanks for listening.